Friday. Ian, how was your day? <laughs> Wait, who's Ian? We should do the intro. Um, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Greater New York Menza podcast, the New York State of Menza podcast. Um, my name is Sarah London. I am looking at the beautiful Carmen Alexander here in our lovely podcast studio that we rented because we're not cheap and we're not using the basement of the NYU Bobes Library anymore. Hi, everybody. <laughs> And over here we have our guest for the week, um, technically all of our bosses, not just mine, but my direct boss and um, presidential and sci-fi writer extraordinaire, Ian Strock. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Anytime. <laughs> Aside from not really anytime, because I think it's a one and done. Like okay. you come on one time. And that then... makes some sense. Wait, because otherwise I'd have to correct title? you too much. My official title? Yes. I'm regional vice chairman representing Region 1 in American Mensa. Region 1 is the northeastern United States. It's all of New England. It's most of New York State, except for western, the western part of the state, and it's northern New Jersey, Mensa. But enough about business. Here to have, here to have well, pleasure. But before, no, he's a big deal. Well, you are a big deal a little bit. You go to all okay, the thanks. AMC meetings. What we're here to talk about is not only are you... Um, my boss, but you're also the publisher of it. Okay, I want to I want to interrupt you. I'm not your boss. Boss, you're technically not your my boss. boss. We're all volunteers. We're all doing <laughs> a job for the organization. Your boss are the members who elected you. Okay, that's fair. I want to hear about. So you have been publishing science fiction works, your own works, and other people's works for a long time. And I know that that's kind of a niche that Menzins like sci-fi. Um, I myself am not super acquainted with sci-fi. Carmen, I don't know if you are. I'm into fantasy, which sometimes leans over into sci-fi. Which is the perfect, perfect um, tie-in to my first question to talk about like speculative fiction and the difference between spec fiction, sci-fi, and science fantasy. But First off, I want to hear a little bit about your company. Like, when did you get into the business of publishing science fiction? Um, and how long has your company been around? Well, my company is actually called Grey Rabbit Publications. I've been publishing science fiction and fantasy and horror and related nonfiction under the Fantastic Books imprint for... Now I'm counting. Wow. Is it seven years already? Seven years. Uh, longer than I realized. Longer than either of us have been alive, right, Carmen? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I've been in the science fiction field longer than either of you have been alive. That's true. Uh, this is my fifth startup business, and the other four are no longer with us. Mm. But this May one's seven years, it's, and it's it's not in debt. It's actually making a little bit of money for itself, although Yay! it's not yet supporting me in the manner to which I should become accustomed. It feels pretty good. That's great. Mm -hmm. Startups are hard, man, especially publishing. Me. Yep. How long have you been working in uh, publishing? All right, I'll actually throw numbers. I try not to do that just because... A true lady doesn't reveal her age. Exactly. <laughs> and though I'm not a lady by any stretch of the imagination, I try not to. I walked in the door at Analog and Asimov Science Fiction Magazines and started my job there, which wasn't my first job, but my first real job in publishing, in January of 1989. And for the last three years of his life, Isaac Asimov came into the office once a week. Yes, so he, did. he got to be a friend of mine, or I got to be a friend of his for the last three years of his life. It was it was really neat. And the last few years now I've had to actually explain who he was. And that's one of the oh. things that upsets me about the modern face of science fiction is that it seems to be forgetting, ignoring, or actively shunning its past. Um We will get into that a little later. Okay. <laughs> So you've been working in the field for a long time. Um, yes. You have a, a body of knowledge on science fiction. So what is what is science fiction? What is speculative fiction? And what is science fantasy? Well, they're all fuzzy terms, none of which have precise dictionary definitions. I like the term speculative fiction. I use it as the umbrella term for science fiction and fantasy and horror. It's fiction based in a world that's not our own. So it differentiates itself from straight fiction in which the author doesn't have to describe the world because we wake up every morning in the world in which that fiction is set. But in science fiction and fantasy and horror, it's a different world. It could look an awful lot like this world, perhaps an alternate history where there's just one little tweak in the past and we're exploring to see what's happened. Or it could be an entirely different realm of understanding where magic works and dragons fly through the skies and uh, horrific creatures come out of, of sewers to grab and eat little children's legs. I'm glad we don't live in that one, in that universe. Oh, but they're so interesting. Aren't they, though? <laughs> yeah. I like to read them. Where did science fiction as an entity start? 
I, there's only one right answer to this question, and I'm going to wait for you to tell it to me. So, Frankenstein, Mary Shelley. Yes, my girl Mary, 19 years old when she wrote that book. Yep. When her husband didn't write it for her and she wrote it herself. Thank you very much. I actually just saw an exhibit, uh, when was I there? In Philadelphia, two or three weeks ago at the Rosh, Rauschenberg Library Museum, which I'd never heard of until that weekend. They had an exhibit of manuscript pages from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein wow. and from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Ah. So it was fascinating. I'm so jealous. My and actually, goth insides are seething with envy. Yes, well, you're right. Mary did actually do the writing. It wasn't her husband. But on the pages they had, you can see the annotations and the editing notes that her husband wrote into them. He would cross out certain phrases and, and suggest other phrases. And then when we look at the published work, we find that a lot of, a lot of the time she took his suggestions. Huh. So it was sort of a collaboration, but she was definitely the one who was doing the initial creating. So she started science fiction in, oh my gosh... 18, 18, 19? Oh, God. 18, 18. 18, 18. I was Very close. Good. Oh, yeah. I really mm -hmm. am a true goth. And where did it go from there? Um, how was how science fiction gone from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to Philip K. Dick writing about, you know, all of his acid hallucinations? Well, somewhere <laughs> about 70, 80 years ago, someone in a marketing department said, you know, we really have to put a label on this stuff because... Up until that time, it was all just fiction. And you'd walk into a bookstore and it was fiction. And as publishing grew and as more and more books were on the market, people needed a way to differentiate amongst them. And so genre labels came into being. And so they said, well, we can call this romance and we can call that mystery and we can call this science fiction. And originally it was all just science fiction. And then it fractured and we got science fiction and fantasy. And then they tacked in horror and all the subsets of that. Genre labels, to my mind, are basically marketing tags so that you can tell where's the stuff I want. Which is fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't necessarily read a lot of sci-fi, but the sci-fi that I have read is like, you know, peak 80s sci-fi. In a couple modern things, I took a course on science fiction and philosophy with, oh my gosh, heaven is missing an angel, and it is this professor. He's incredible. A while ago, I took this course, and we read Philip K. Dick. We read... Um, Harlan Ellison, I have no mouth and I must scream. Um, some Ted Chang, I love him. He's incredible. But like, I don't know mm -hmm. how science fiction went from, like, I know Philip K. Dick kind of brought it into relevancy, but I don't know how things from, I see the look on your face, you're like, maybe not. Um, I don't know that I'd say Philip Dick made it relevant. I, I think he was so outlandish when he was writing it that people weren't sure what it was. And it's only recently that the world has caught up with him. Um, and that's that's a lot of how science fiction grew through the years. I, I think the golden age we usually mark as um, the, from 1937 when John Campbell started editing Astounding, which turned into Analog, which I worked for in much later years. Before Campbell's time, it was science fiction was Hugo Gernsback's thing. Gernsback was the editor of Amazing from 1926. Amazing. Amazing was the uh, the magazine. Amazing stories. It, it went through several different versions of the name, but it's always amazing was the, okay. the name of the magazine. Kind of like the Twilight Zone magazine a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was it was fiction where the science was paramount. And so it was all these nifty ideas. And, and frequently the fiction, the, the characters, the settings were a lot less interesting, a lot less advanced than they could have been. So it was hard science fiction rather than soft science fiction. It was... Scientific imaginings. When Campbell came into the field, he was one of the first to emphasize both halves of the term science fiction. The science was important and the fiction. And so it got more of a literary bent and the stories became more recognizable as stories. And then through the decades, science fiction authors are authors who want to talk about nifty concepts, nifty ideas that they've come up with, things that might be sometime in the future, but they also want to tell really good stories that'll interest people. And so Every generation, every decade, science fiction tends to reflect the world in which it's written, even though most of it is written about the future, ostensibly. So in the 60s, well, in the 40s, there was a lot of fear of world, global war and then of nuclear annihilation, and that lasted into the 50s and the 60s, and then it was all the evil empire, the Soviet Union, which, as I was thinking about that concept earlier, and I realized... Soviet Union is just history to you, to like the Byzantine Empire, which is also <laughs> depressing me for another reason. And then we you got know, into the, Reds the 70s. The still bad, right? As far as I know. <laughs> 
And then the 70s and 80s, the, the big bag that was everyone's, on everyone's mind was the ecology. The, uh, the biosphere was going to collapse. And so fiction talk, science fiction talked about that an awful lot. And then into the 90s, there were whatever the big problem of the day was, was reflected in science fiction. And today, a lot of science fiction is focusing much more on interpersonal relationships and the changing face of people. A la Black Mirror. Which I have to admit is a, is something I don't know. <laughs> kind of science fiction. You're a Black Mirror fan, aren't you, Carmen? I hate Black Mirror. What? <laughs> really? It's disgusting. How is it disgusting? It's, I, ugh. <laughs> I've only seen a couple episodes of it, but it's very, it's a dystopian sci-fi technology oriented uh, vignettes of well, episodes. I'm well, not big into Netflix produced things, but Black mm -hmm. Mirror is very interesting. Well, dystopia seems to be the current, the thing that we've been, I want to say suffering through for the last 10, 15 I years. I wonder why. Because <laughs> I'm a fan of optimistic science fiction. I think science fiction is entertaining. And if we're lucky, it shows us a possible future that we want to make happen. But as with everything, we go we go through uh, trends, and there's optimism, there's pessimism, optimism, pessimism, and dystopias and pessimistic outlooks have been a really big thing for the last 15, 20 years, perhaps that long, probably that long, and I don't like that. <laughs> I get that it's a possibility, and I get that it's warning us that we should turn away from our ways to make things better, but dystopias don't interest me that much and it seems in, in many ways philosophically uncreative to write about yet another dystopia you know there are so many nihilism is so easy to default to in so many situations especially in writing that you know huh. why why are we it's, it's harder to be positive and it's harder to write positive science fiction now see those who write the dystopias say precisely the opposite that's why they call the positive upbeat fiction the mary sue stuff and they, uh -huh. they, they say oh, it's too easy to write that it's difficult to write the dystopias but i look at that the same way i look at the award shows like for the movies where the movies that win the awards are always the important films the the big heavy themes the depressing films but which movies win at the box office the fun stuff science fiction right science fiction's always the top 10 earners at the box office and they're never anywhere in the oscars and i see similar things in the, the literary awards that the books the stories that get the awards are the big important ones but to my mind by and large, they're not as much fun. And now as I'm saying this, I'm realizing, geez, I'm cutting off my own nose in front of everybody <laughs> who might actually listen to this. Um, so tell me about some books that you are reading now, some optimistic science fiction that you like. We're going to talk about optimistic science fiction. I knew you were going to ask me that question, and I have a very depressing answer to that, which is I have very little time to read books that I'm not already working on because well, I'm running it, a small publishing company. Well, books that you're working on. Sure, sure. One book I've been raving about for the last year that I read that I did not publish, I don't have a financial interest in, is Arkwright by Alan Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E. -E. Alan is a hard science fiction writer, and I'm fortunate to be able to publish most of his short fiction collections, but his novels tend to go to large publishing houses. It's a book about humanities expanding off the face of the earth and colonizing the planets and how it's going to happen, and it's both depressing and optimistic in the way he gets people out there. Hmm. I think it's a wonderful book, so I've been raving about that one. Uh, the book I'm reading right now that I was actually reading on the way in here is Theodore Roosevelt's autobiography. Yeah, presidents. The <laughs> President other, stuff. Because... The other dystopian thing that you're interested in. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a different issue altogether. Uh, I recently finished reading The Red Carnival by Susan Casper, mm -hmm. which is a dark fantasy tending towards horror book set at a traveling carnival. Ooh. And the reason I read that is because I'm publishing it. Oh. And wow. the official publication date is actually tomorrow. Oh, my God. Wow. It's a this really good book. This is actually something I'm interested in. I love yeah. a horror carnival. Yeah. Maybe two favorite things together. <laughs> well, Susan passed away last year. Oh. And um, I, I knew her a long time. Her husband, Gardner Dozois, is a big-name editor in the field, won all the Hugo Awards as Best Editor. And after her death, he realized that he wanted to put together a collection of all of her short fiction. And I said, I'm a publisher. I'd love to publish that. So we got together and we published Up the Rainbow last year. And then he found this manuscript for the novel she wrote that had never been published. So we worked together on that. And like I said, it's coming out tomorrow. Wow, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed any correlation between um, science fiction writing and Mensa member interest? Because I have noticed a huge amount of Mensa members are into either sci-fi or fantasy, like you're talking about. There's a lot of crossover between Mensons and science fiction fans. Those who are writing science fiction, I don't know. I, I assume there are some, 
but most of the writers tend to be a little more solitary. <laughs> I would, yeah, I would, I would buy that. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a very popular genre within Mensa. Then again, so is mystery. Um, yeah, Mensons like figuring out puzzles. We do, and perhaps that could be part of it. Mysteries or puzzles and science fiction. A lot of it is is puzzle solving as well. Now, with the advent of the internet, do you think that sci-fi has kind of developed in a new direction, especially publishing short stories or a lot of, I guess, fan fiction is really big now. Yeah, um, the internet has definitely opened the door to these smaller dollar figure pursuits. Fan fiction's been there for a very long time, but it used to be people sitting at home writing fiction connected to, related to their favorite works or taking TV programs that they loved and putting their characters into different situations and then sharing it with each other through photocopied uh, newsletters, mimeographed way back when. With the internet, it's so much easier to make it easy to read and to spread it as far and wide as you possibly can. So it's great for fan fiction. I have nothing to do with that because (laughs) I'm trying to work the pro side of the street. Professionally, the internet has been a bane for most publishing. I would imagine. For instance, Craigslist killed the daily newspaper. And I know that because my first job in newspapering was as the classified advertising manager of a newspaper. And Craigslist basically ate all of the classified advertising, which was a big moneymaker for newspapers. Interesting. I didn't, like, that wouldn't have occurred to me that Craigslist was the... That's what happened to daily newspapers. And one of the unfortunate side effects of the internet is that people consuming information from the internet naturally assume that it's a free and that everything should be free and therefore they're less likely to want to pay for a magazine of short stories or to pay for a book and that eats into the the profit that well it eats into the livelihood of the people writing that stuff it hasn't killed at all one of them being you as far as i can remember right you do some sci-fi writing i i am a i do think of myself as a science fiction writer but 98 percent of my published words have been nonfiction. I don't blame the internet for any downturn in my own career because my <laughs> career has never been all that big oh, as a writer, well, because I've been an editor. Who are some of your biggest sci-fi influences when you're writing? <sighs> well, Some of your favorites? Well, I love Isaac Asimov's work, even though I don't see much influence of, what, of his writing on mine. I keep rereading Robert Heinlein because oh, yeah. he had a knack for telling a story that you couldn't put down the book. And I, I need to learn how to do that. Arthur Clarke was wonderful. Uh, Spider Robinson is great. I keep rereading Lois McMaster Bujol because she can really characterize the characters come to life. Oh, I, I already mentioned Alan Steele. Yeah. I love all of his stuff. Robert Sawyer writes very, very well to the point that you don't realize how quickly you're reading it. Are um, any of these a particular, like, uh, set in a certain time or a certain place or certain story arcs that you find familiar? I don't is think there I focus that, that way. Tie these guys together for you? No, or? I no, I don't think so. Um, with Heinlein, even even his well, in his later years, he tried to tie all of his fiction into one big universe, but everything stood apart. He, he, everything was done individually. I don't see a lot of connection amongst them all. Hmm. They're just a whole bunch of different people that I enjoy reading, and those that I reread is because I want to learn how they're doing it. Even right. though I've been doing it for a while and I've been selling for a while. I'm not as good as I can be. <laughs> well, everybody has exactly. to set the bar a little higher yep. for whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Karen, do you do a lot of reading, like sci-fi reading, fantasy reading, any of, or writing? Do you do any writing? Oh, this is such a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I'll start with I'll start with the reading. I read on the train, and so I read the best books when I have to go to Brooklyn. Yeah, um, it takes forever. <laughs> I have to say, like, all-time favorite Robert Jordan Will of Time series, which I've actually mm. talked to a few mentions about having read. And Sarah J. Mass is also an amazing fantasy writer. So I read more when I'm in a good book. I do notice that. But if I'm in a bad book, I read almost infrequently. Yeah. And then I'm obsessed if I'm in a good book. Um, writing, I actually wrote for what's our Mensa... Emphasis or the em- bulletin? The bu- No, Emphasis. It was a few oh, years wow. ago, but I wrote a piece about my first Minson oh, yeah. adventure. Oh, um, my God. I remember that. Yeah. So I write, but I don't write books like <laughs> <laughs> Ian does. So I love writing. I love it. Oh, man. Writing is the best. I remember I sent you the sci-fi short story one time. I, I never mm-hmm. write sci-fi just because it's so out of my element. I'm so used to writing just fiction or 
um, creative nonfiction I love doing, but sci-fi has always been so difficult for me because I'm world building is really really hard. Oh to, yeah. Especially if you want to do like hard science fiction, sure. which I is totally impossible for me. And hard science fiction for our listeners who are not um, aware is uh, more scientifically accurate science fiction it's really focused on scientific accuracy as opposed to a soft science fiction which is kind of like eh, anything can happen you're kind of yeah, was i kind of right that, that's kinda a right? good way of putting it yeah right. yeah I, I i look at hard science fiction as a very rigorous extrapolation of what we have into a possible future and soft science fiction is as you say anything goes yeah yeah which is a little easier to do but mm-hmm. kind of hard to get picked apart for that anything goes um outlook <laughs> well it, it depends what you're trying to write what story you're trying to tell and you know i i like i said i think of myself as a science fiction writer even though most of what i'm writing is nonfiction. and i've been trying to figure out why and, and a lot of that i think is it's very satisfying emotionally to complete a story and to sell a story even though for me it's a lot easier to write nonfiction, and nonfiction actually pays so much better right <laughs> but there is something beautiful about creating something and putting that into the world. There is. There is. Yeah. I, I, I've been in the field a long time. I have a lot of friends who are writers and who have novel writing careers and many books to their name. And I was so excited when my first book came out. And I showed it to my friends. And I said, look, oh. now I have a book with my name on the cover just like yeah. you. And my friends looked down their nose and said, yeah, but that's nonfiction. Come back when you've written a novel. Oh, <laughs> yeah. See, I'm the friends. That's me. Writing nonfiction is just too easy. You and your president books. <laughs> Do you have any Menza friends that are sci-fi writers? And if so, can you recommend any of their books? Mensa friends who are science fiction writers. Jeffrey Landis. Jeff Landis is a member of Mensa. Jeff Landis is also a short fiction writer. I'm not sure that he's written. He may have written one or two novels, but his short stuff. I still remember a story of his that published in Asimov's way back when called A Walk in the Sun. It's a story about an astronaut who finds herself stranded on the moon and has to walk around the moon. Oh, man. Literally around the moon. I feel like that would take a long time. Uh, in the story, it took her a month for... So she had, like, food and water? Yeah, what or... about food and... She, like she had food. She had water. The, huh. point, the problem in the story is that she was in a solar-powered cel- uh, spacesuit, and so she had to stay in the sun. Ah. Since the moon rotates once every month, she had to walk around the moon. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. That's actually that's kind of cool. Yep, and that was years before Andy Weir wrote The Martian. <laughs> I'm sorry, that sounds a little boring. So that sounds like well, a long walk. It's a short story. <laughs> it is a long walk. Did she ever iPod to listen to? Did she like? Yeah. What made it interesting? My God, kids today. There were no iPods. Did <laughs> she ever walk? <laughs> she had her. She had her um, she AM radio to herself. <laughs> <laughs> she spends the entire month talking to herself. Oh, okay, so now she I has can be musings. down for that. Musings, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Not music, but musings. I'd be down for that. that I can get down fun. with yeah. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Other mentions write science fiction. There, there are several friends of mine who are not yet professionally published who are trying to write science fiction. Well, Isaac Asimov was mem- a mention and a science fiction author. Yes, yes, was. Yes, was. There are a lot of science fiction authors who I think would qualify for Mensa membership, but I don't think ever bothered to join the organization. I would believe it. Yeah. So this is an open call to all sci-fi writers who could be eligible for Menza. Please, please join us. I think that would be an incredible collection of short stories, actually, sci-fi written by Menzans. I think it definitely could be. Yeah, when the annual gathering was in Boston a couple of years ago, I was able to put together a panel of science fiction authors, several of my authors who lived in the area. For, for a New York publisher, it's surprising that m- the greatest concentration of my own authors are, is Boston. And they were interested, but I, I don't know that any of them actually went through the process of joining. Yeah, the process is a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, facing rejection, perhaps. This is not fun. Well, <laughs> They're probably frequently rejected for their writing. I know, the publishing world is hard. It is. It is, because everybody wants to make a buck. But one of them, uh, Sherry Ann Lewitt, is a professor at MIT, in addition to writing science fiction, and has her doctorate, I always forget which of the biological sciences, but she's got a doctorate in one of the biologies and teaches at MIT. And actually, I'm bringing out a book that she co-wrote with Susan Schwartz. It was published a long time ago. It's been out of print, and it's coming back into print through my company called White Wing, which I recently read. It's also fascinating. And I had both of them proofread the manuscript just to make sure it's clean. And they both said, wow, it's so long since I've read this, but it really holds up. So I'm, I'm hoping other people will say, this is a good book. 
What's it about? White Wing sounds like an amazing title. Um, it's a it's post Earth where humanity is out in the galaxy fighting in a massive interspecies war, and the White Wing is is one wing of fighter pilots and how they basically survive the rigors of being where they are and who they are. And it also talks about um, well a lot of interpersonal relationships and as as you read the book, it's one of the surprises how family structures can change yet work for, for the people in the situations they're at. It sounds like it's going to be made into a movie. Ooh. Ah, from your <laughs> lips to Hollywood's ears. Yeah, right. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Uh, it was originally published under a pseudonym because it was oh. the 1980s. It was published by Gordon Kendall. Mm. But now that we're redoing it, it's going to be published by, I don't remember which order. It's either Sherry Ann Lewitt and Susan Schwartz or Susan Schwartz and Sherry Ann Lewitt. <laughs> but it'll be out in the next month or three. All right. What is one science fiction book that nobody has read i mean here it's a little bit in total Mm -hmm. we are not the most educated on science fiction you seem to know a lot (laughs) it's kind of making me feel bad i know about as much as anybody who like reads some science fiction but doesn't really watch star wars that like i shouldn't i shouldn't say this over the air because i'm gonna get um impeached but (laughs) i'm not a big star wars fan i'm not a trekkie i'm not you know I don't really even like fantasy that that much. The closest Doctor? fantasy I like is the original Mord Artur, the original <laughs> book. Who does Doctor Who fall yeah, under? Minson. I actually would want to pursue kind of the line of thinking of why Mensons are into science fiction and fantasy because there's also this thing of your mind being really crowded and really busy <laughs> and you need a distraction from that, but you can't have it can't be too easy. You mm-hmm. need to fully be incorporated within the story and kind of keeping track of what works in this world, what doesn't work in this world. Some worlds, for example, they may not have electricity. They may be, be beyond that. You want to track every single piece of, you have to do something differently. Someone else thought about it. I mean, I'm trying I mean, to think I of... Do, I could do probably a quick analysis of why Menzins would be into sci-fi, but I don't know if that would be necessarily very interesting. I think people like to hear about themselves. Well, kind of understand a little bit more about themselves. And you have the psychology background, right? Uh, not to toot my own horn, but a little, a little bit. Actually, it's funny. I was in the process of writing this article that is probably never actually going to get finished because it's taking forever. It's like one of those things you just start writing it. Then you'll come back to it a little bit and then you work on it and then it's not that good and you rewrite it and it's this whole big thing. Well, I, I only have 75 or 100 of those on my computer. Yeah. <laughs> like three files like full of. Mm-hmm. Things that I'll probably never finish, but like to talk about as if I'm going to finish them anyway. This uh, article I was going to submit to the bulletin about Menzins and why kind of why we reject certain aspects of of cultural phenomenon and accept others. And I think one of them is when you're a really smart kid, sometimes you can be ostracized from your peer group by being engaged in school and you can want to find different outlets for trying to escape a world that is otherwise very much rejecting of you and I think science fiction is the perfect gateway for that like when you're younger and you want to play pretend and you want to get away from all the bullies and you want to you know find your imaginary friends because no one else is going to hang out with you you kind of like gravitate towards a world that is so far away from your own that you then feel accepted regardless of where you are in life. So I think that might be a good entry point for a lot of us into sci-fi. I know certainly for me, I like sci-fi because I like um, not being in the world the way it is. So if I, and even if it's like really gruesome, like I was talking about Harlan Ellison, if I have no mouth on my screen, like even if it's really gruesome sci-fi, really horrific stuff, I love to read about it just because it gets me away from the world for a little bit. And it gets me into a weird kind of uh, headspace of like, you know, so otherworldly, so dissociative from your own self. And it's so much fun. Yeah. And you're not trapped in a world that is rejecting you, like normal fiction. Well, normal fiction can be a little bit too familiar, I that's, think. Like that's when what I'm trying to say. Yeah. When you identify mm-hmm. with a, a sci fi character who is a hero who's, I don't know, the stupid Philip K. Dick, the three stigmata Palmer Eldritch, like you identify with the hero with the busty ladies around him and he's going around like saving the universe. Like that's the guy that you want to be rather than I read this, you know, nonfiction book about, I don't know, the only like historical fiction book I can think about right now is Esperanza Rising because I read it in the fifth grade. And I remember hating it because I was like, she's just so sad. If I were to relate to this main character, it's the saddest thing in the world. But if Esperanza Rising took place on the moon, I'd be like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. 
Well, you've just described the entire Harry Potter phenomenon. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone wants to run away to Hogwarts because yep. high school, you get trash cans put on your head or you get your lunch money taken or something. I don't know okay, how that works. Some Mensons are popular. I was big. <laughs> cool people. Yeah, some I, of you yeah. are. The okay. rest of us, not so much. Just saying, some of us had friends and were class president <laughs> and, you know. Oh, stop. Were you prom queen too? <laughs> No. <laughs> My school didn't have proms. That. I went to a math and science school. Oh, well, no, we had it. a prom there. I went to another school. It was all IB that was, there was no prom. Oh. So there were no kings and queens. But anyway. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, was, I, was, I talked about that in the article that will never get finished, too. That, like, I, I like to get acrylic nails and, like, do jello shots and, you know, put on high heels. And, like, does that make me any less of an intelligent person because I consciously can indulge in really stupid stuff you know just because i'm not a nuclear physicist you haven't I... been to nearly enough regional gatherings or annual gatherings mensons <laughs> love to indulge in the stupid stuff well it's a different <laughs> variety of stupid stuff than uh things that they would mm -hmm. things that well and i know this is also kind of like when you get a large group of mensons together especially in new york like we have a very liberal bubble effect. I hate to say that. I made, I made giant air quotes everybody when I said it. Liberal bubble. But it's true. Like, everybody's so accepting, especially in Menza, but a lot of more, I guess, stingy nerd cultures would contrast heavily with my lifestyle of hyperindulgence of, you know, getting a facial instead of buying a book or something like that. But I was just like, why can't I do both? I don't know. <laughs> Does any of this resonate with you and kind of why you initially became interested in science fiction of kind of your place in the world? And That's a good question because I've been trying to figure out what got me into science fiction. When I go to science fiction conventions, when I talk to authors, when I talk to fans, inevitably there's second and third generation science fiction fans. They got into it because their parents were into it. Their parents brought them to conventions as kids. They started reading their grandparents' magazines. In my family, I'm the only one with any interest in science fiction. I have no idea how I got the bug. I assume I must have seen an episode of Star Trek on television, which got me interested. It's, I don't know what got me into science fiction other than perhaps seeing that and then the contrariness of the fact that nobody else was reading it. Yeah, I'm, I'm so not the norm in science fiction, in the science fiction world just because I'm the only one. And my parents will read what I write and my mother's also a writer, so she'll help me editing it, but she doesn't understand the concepts or the words because it's science fiction and not her thing. And sometimes my dad will read what I write. I think it's, he's more proud of the fact that I'm doing well rather than enjoying what it is I'm writing. Maybe seeking the, not to analyze you on the air, because I'm not qualified to do that at all, but maybe like you're being into science fiction it was a reflection of trying to get away from places that weren't friendly to science fiction. Like if you were the only one in your family to get into science fiction, are you getting away from the rest of the world? A well, place of your own? Well, yeah. back to what you were saying earlier, I definitely didn't fit in in school. Yeah, in high school, my friends were actually through the Temple Youth Group, not the people I went to school with. And I just, it was just a place that I had to spend my days. So yeah, definitely reading about other worlds was a big help. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I can get behind that. Oh, yeah. I used to read at lunch. We still had to sit at all those mm -hmm. like long tables with the chairs, and our teacher gave us assigned seating so I couldn't sit with my friends. So I would just pull out a book and read at lunch when Me everyone too. else was chatting. I was like, I'm not going to deal with you guys. And again, it took you to another place. <laughs> yep. What did you read at lunch? I don't remember. I am the person who checks out a book more than once and forgot that I read it. <laughs> so <laughs> you can't, I have no idea. But actually, theoretically, it would save a lot of money if you were to buy the book. Because then you're like, oh, wow, this book I've never read before. And then, oh, wow, this book I've never read before. Like, rather than spending another $15, you could just go buy the book again. <laughs> I will reread books. And I have to say, your story reminded me kind of how other people got into science fiction. I mentioned Robert Jordan and The Will mm -hmm. of Time. Yeah. My brother gave me a book, um, and it was just the first half of the book, just a small paperback, and he said, you should read this when I was somewhere in my teens, and it was amazing. And from there, I continued reading that and other fantasy books, but it was because someone gave it to me, not because cool. I was able to dig in and say, let me read a science fiction, I mean, a fantasy book. Yeah. Yeah. But I did read romance novels in my mm -hmm. tweens, and those were fantasy too. 
You were reading Twilight, weren't you? No, I mean like Harlequin um, romance. Those are total fantasy. That's fun. (laughs) So I did start on fantasy a little bit before, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, I had an idea because we're getting close to time. I had an idea to cap this off. I have a piece of literature that you sent me, a short story. Wow. Who wrote it? You. Oh, something I wrote. Something you wrote. Whoa, that's frightening. Frightening concept. I've never heard my own stuff read by anyone else. I hope I can pronounce everything. (laughs) I don't even remember which one it is. We'll find out. But you're talking about reading on the subway. That's the one thing I miss working at home Mm. is when I worked outside the home at somebody else's office, I would have my 45 minutes or an hour each way on the subway. I got so much reading done. Yes. But now that I'm working at home, if I'm sitting there reading, I feel like I'm wasting time and I should be doing something else. I do notice that when I'm reading a really good book, I'm mm-hmm. just like, I take my Kindle out of my bag and I'm like, okay, we're going to read it here mm-hmm. rather than saving it for the train. Yep. But, or one of my friends lives in Brooklyn and I never want to go there, but if I'm reading a good book, I'm like, hey, you, you want to get <laughs> together? I can come out there. <laughs> so to, to kind of cap things off. At oh, this here, one. Huh? Okay. No, yeah. I just oh, saw the one. title. Now I know which story it is. <laughs> oh, I'm scared I'm not going to be able to pronounce um, it. To cap things off, um, I wanted to have... One of us read um, one of Ian's short stories that he sent me forever ago that I love called Living It is the Best Revenge. Um, it was published in Analog Sci-Fi and Fact uh, in February of 1996 and was the winner of the 1996 Analytical Laboratory Reader's Choice Award for Best Short Story. Wow. So you roll your eyes. You have to accept the compliments. I wasn't rolling my eyes. It was shock. Shock, right? Surprise. So Carmen's going to read a little blip of this. If you are at all interested, you can contact Ian and or buy one of his books and or is this in a collection somewhere? Go buy I collection. actually haven't published a collection of my short fiction yet because huh. I tend to write short, short stories. So it takes an awful lot of them to make a full book. Right. All right. Carmen, you want to kick it off? Okay. Everybody bear with me. This is my first time. I don't think this one's got any complex this. words in it. You'll do fine. Okay. <laughs> Mark was walking to the subway station at a brisk pace. It was late and he wanted to get home. The sidewalks were wet from the rain, but fortunately had stopped before he left the office. Since he'd forgotten to bring... His back was on fire. Then he felt cold as ice. He dropped his briefcase and felt the sidewalk rush up, to, rush up at him. Then a hand rolled him over onto his back, and he saw a shaggy young man with a bandana tied over his nose and mouth. The young man was holding a shiny black knife. Mark tried to say something, but his mouth wouldn't work. The young man checked each pocket, removed Mark's wallet, and started to walk away. Then he stopped, turned back, and wiped the bloody knife on Mark's jacket. Mark moaned in pain and tried to call for help. The sound of footsteps brought him back to himself. The woman screamed and the man hurried out of sight. He returned moments later and said, Lie still, an ambulance is coming. You're going to be all right. Mark's first ambulance ride was a confusion of sights and sounds as he faded into and out of consciousness. The paramedic stabbing his arm with a needle, the siren, the ambulance lurching from side to side, the paramedic screaming, Faster, Joe! He won't hang on much longer! Then the flickering of light and not light in his eyes as he was wheeled into and through a hospital. Then a black gas mask came over his face. Mark, can you hear me? Jenny's face was tired and streaked with tears. Her hair was messed, must, and she would say, as she would say. And she's sniffling as she held his hand to her chest. Jenny, he said, or tried to say, I'm here, honey. I'm here. I was so worried. Jenny, I'm very tired. Of course you are, darling. You rest. I'll stay right here. Mr. Taylor, I'm Dr. Schoenfeld. I'm the one who operated on you last night. This is Detective Morrow. What am I doing here? Do you remember anything about last night, Morrow asked. He turned his head and saw Jenny holding his hand. She looked like she had been up all night. I was working late in the office. I was walking to the subway and glad it had stopped raining because I'd forgotten my, um, and then what? Then, then I felt this incredible pain on my back. It was like I was burning up and then freezing, and I fell down. Yes. And uh, a man with a bandana on his face, holding a knife. He took my wallet. Do you think you'd recognize this man, Mr. Taylor? I, I don't know. It was dark, and I wasn't thinking too clearly. And could I have a drink of water, please? 
Of course, Mr. Taylor. Detective, please don't hire him out. Mr. Taylor's going to be with us for a few days yet. Doctor, we're holding a man right now. We think he's the man who attacked Mr. Taylor, but if he can't officially but if we can't officially charge him with anything, we'll have to release him soon. If Mr. Taylor could swear a complaint, we have sufficient grounds to hold him. All right, detective, what do you need me to say? <laughs> a nurse was whispering with Dr. Schoenfeld by the door. What is it, doctor? You seem to ha- be having a reaction to something, Mr. Taylor. We're not quite sure what you still have why you still have a fever. He'd been feeling worse today rather than better. Mark started to feel nauseous again and reached for the barf bucket barely in time. When he stopped heaving and had rinsed his mouth, the doctor said, we're going to have to do some blood tests. Mark held out his arm resignedly as the nurse returned with a needle and some test tubes. Mark was shivering and his whole body ached as Jenny brought the kids in to see him. Daddy, daddy, five-year-old Maggie cried as she saw him lying there. You have to get up. You have to get better. You promised. Mark Jr., who was 12, was more reserved. But in his eyes, Mark could see the fear of death. It made him shiver even more. Jenny, Mark mumbled. I'm here, honey, she said, patting his hand. I'm so tired, babe. He barely whispered. Then sleep, Mark. It's okay. I'll be right here. Okay, he said and faded into unconsciousness. Yeah, that was great. I love this story. <laughs> what is going to happen to Mark? Wow. <laughs> thanks thanks <laughs> you for know. remembering I that. know. But Carmen doesn't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh... I'm, I'm feeling bad for the places where I stumbled, but... <laughs> oh, you did fine. You did good. I love this story. It's, it's a cross between a, a medical mystery a little bit <laughs> and the you have all of the minimalistic qualities of sci-fi which i really it's the very cut and dry writing style i love dialogue i love the the talk the the banter between the everyone has a different voice and that's actually on purpose when i started writing i thought i did dialogue very poorly and so i set myself an exercise to write a story entirely in dialogue and (laughs) well the first one didn't go anywhere but the second one wasn't very good and i think the third one i managed to sell there we I go. I learned to do dialogue. But it, it's interesting you mentioned the minimalism in it. Um, I, I see two distinct poles within science fiction. One is like this, minimal, uh, very little description. Asimov called it talking heads because that was what he wrote. And the other pole is very florid, very descriptive. China Mieville, I remember listening to him read a piece of his stuff. And the description was so lush and so incredible and it's a, it's a wonderful piece of writing, but it's it's not the type of writing that I want to do myself because I want I want to get more to the story right now. Yeah, I'm so, a, a very florid writer myself, so writing sci-fi like yeah the 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 minimalistic qualities are very difficult for me to do. Well, but that's what I'm saying. There, there's room for both versions because China well, China's got a hell of a lot better writing career than I do. <laughs> um, yeah. So, will you tell me what happens when we're off the air? When we're off the air. Okay. We're off the air, okay. <laughs> uh, not for you guys. You have to go find it. You do. You have to ask Ian for it. Um, do you think I should read my? I don't know. Should I read mine? Well, Come you've in. already teased that you were going to. Well, then I, I could cut it out pretty easily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Should, yeah, just Sock okay. it to us. Um, again, I love writing, but this is the, I think this is my first and only sci-fi story that I've ever written. Actually, no, I wrote one more. Um, for a class, oh my gosh, forever ago. Well, let's see what you got. Yeah, this was, this was, um, I had a dream. And so this was me writing down my dream because I thought it kind of sounded like a sci-fi story. Um, and read a little bit. Yeah, you people who write down your dreams always surprise me because it's so, so rare that I even recall having a dream. Really? Let alone remember what was in it. I dream every single night. It's awful. Me too. What do you mean awful? awful. I love dreaming. Because mine are so close to reality <laughs> that I have to think really hard about if it happened or not. So one will be like my boss saying, you did an awful job. And so I wake up and I feel bad. Or like there's this dead plant on my desk and I had a dream that it sprouted all these green leaves. And I was like, yes, it's growing. And then I get to work and it's still dead. So. <laughs> okay. Now, why am I That's not surprised sad. that you're dreaming reality as opposed to fantasy worlds? 
I I wish we, I just wish we got to get stop. you out of your own skin <laughs> and into the wider universe of possibility. Well, I do. I, I didn't mention this. I don't write mm-hmm. fantasy novels down, but I actually tell myself stories in my head, and I create elaborate scenes, characters, their motivations. Yeah. And every night when I'm falling asleep, I add on to the story. So the idea would be that when I completely work out everything, I can mm-hmm. sit down and write it. Oh, oh that's I how I started. That. So oh yeah. A lot of writers I know, everything goes down on paper, and they're constantly rewriting and rewriting and editing and revising. Me, with my short fiction, it's all up in my head until it's almost ready to go. And then I write it down, and maybe I'll go through it once or twice, but it it comes out because I've been working on it in my own head. And that works great for an 800-word story, but I'm not sure I'll be able to pull that off for a novel. Yeah, I get that. (laughs) So i got to learn this other form of writing. I'm a future I and <laughs> <laughs> I would wish you something much better than that. Oh, come on. Underselling yourself again. Eh, I've lived this life. I know what it is. <laughs> All right. Um, Sarah. This is called... Sarah. Oh, my God. This is called Argentina. Um, I don't know if I actually submitted it to any contests or anything, but maybe I should. Um, this is... Some of it actually happened. Okay, never mind. I'll just I'll go into it, okay? <sighs> I go to bed like I always do, with a melatonin, some cheap, cheap, some... Oh, my God, I have to start over now. I go to bed like I always do, with a melatonin, some cheap tea I got on sale at the Morton Williams, and my fan blowing directly onto my head, keeping me cool while I wait for my super to get around to fixing my air conditioner. I dream about a ranch on a hill, where I wrangled ponies in a field with my mother, a better equestrian than anyone I know. We put the ponies back in the paddock, beside the goats, the sheep, the fully grown horses across the way. Funny how she's amassed a lot of animals, I thought. I can't remember this many animals the last time I visited. I thought she didn't even like goats. We go to the top of the ranch, the top of the hill, where we have lunch in a lovely wooden dining room. My meal had eggs and arugula, and my mom takes pictures of both me and the charming little plate. My dream ends as abruptly as it starts, as do all my dreams. I don't wake up in bed. I'm lying on a park bench in Holland in a large yellow blanket with a large blue plastic suitcase at my feet. A long street, muted gray and dishearteningly dystopian, stretches around me, an empty street that reminds me of the Maria Hilfestrasse in Vienna, where I lived with my husband. My husband? I'm hit too hard with the pain of thinking of him to continue doing so, though I thought I never was married at all. I flip over and check my phone, as I always do when I first wake up, and see photos of myself with chubby cheeks, blue eyes, at a ranch with my mother, the ranch I just chased three ponies through in a dream. I blink. The pictures change, one by one, to pictures I've taken in New York with my friends and family, pictures I have on my phone beside me as I write this. A glitch, I think. My phone must have glitched. Turning to my left, I'm faced with a highly reflective building shooting back, the, shooting back at me the wild-eyed, panicked expre- expression of someone who knew she was hallucinating. I didn't look any different than I do now, aside from my eyes, which are no- not normally blue. I often wish they were, though. Brown eyes are much too boring. My eyes, I thought a steady voice in my head peppered with fear and shock. Maybe that's the glitch, if that's the sort of thing can happen in real life. A car approaches me on the still desolate street, white, nondescript, a Toyota, a Honda, a car too generic to know what year I'm in for sure, with a siren on top. The windows are down, and I see two oddly familiar faces. Still out here, eh, the driver says. I cannot muster a response, my gaze feeling just as strong as the one I had held myself in seconds before. He turns to his partner, and they exit the car, both in suits, with little badges on their lapels. They're detectives. I do not know why or how, or how I know that, other than the fact they've told me before. But that's hardly a good reason for an inference, especially when I don't know where I am, or frankly, who I am. The first detective sits behind me affectionately, with a touch of pity in his stature. He's large, robust, with brown hair, and a thick partial beard, a strong Roman nose, with a little Brooklyn in him. I wonder if he's ever been to Brooklyn, or even ever heard of it. He looks too much like my husband to bear his eye contact, but we're drawn to each other regardless. My stare, one I can feel is insane, unblinking, yes, clinically insane, locks him, draws him into me. I wonder if my eyes are still blue. What an effect that would be, I think. His partner is small, spindly, blonde, probably 20 years his junior. He is unremarkable, and he is scared. I wish I knew why. Um, email me for the rest. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so where's it going? <laughs> do you know where it's going? I wrote it, girl. Completely. It's done. Oh, it's done. It's over. <laughs> it's, what is it? 2,000 words. Oh, it's over. then get it out there. 
It was kind of, I got it out there a little bit. Okay. It's funny, like, I'm not used to writing like that at all. Uh-huh. Like, this is so not like me. It okay. was very... Well, and for those who don't know Sarah, I'm now looking at her trying to picture her with those blue eyes. I know, right? I used to have contacts. Intensely brown eyes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we have to wrap this up because it is a thousand degrees in this room again. How is it so, like, the two of us are together, this combustible force that heats up any podcasting room? Hot, hot, hot. Hot, hot, hot. Now, see, if I'd said that, it would sound completely different. <laughs> <laughs> Smart man, don't say it. Thank you for joining us, everybody, and thank you for listening. If you would like to be on the podcast or if you have any suggestions of people to be on the podcast, any lovely menzins you know with amazing hobbies and interests and professions and things that they're very passionate about, um, email me, sarah.london at bod.gnym.org or email Carmen. No. Okay, email Carmen. Just email me. Yep, email Sarah. Or if you want to talk to Carmen, you can use me as the middleman because you're still looking for that over seven foot 11 guy. I know. I'm trying to think, how will I let strangers contact me? Find me on LinkedIn, Carmen Alexander. All right. I'm black. (laughs) Oh, oh, to narrow it down. Carmen Alexander. Carmen Alexander. Yes, absolutely splendid. Was it absolutely splendid, Ian? It was. For more information on Greater New York Mensa, go to www.gnym.org. I feel like I should have done that. For more information on American Mensa, (laughs) check out us.mensa.org, and that's M-E-N-S-A, despite Sarah's pronunciation with the Z. Okay, we're going to get another person making fun of me. Now I can't stop doing it, because now everyone makes fun of me for it. But it's spelled with an S. But it's said with a Z. And if you're interested in what I was talking about, you can look at either either fantasticbooks.biz, which is my corporate site, and, oh, what the heck, I'm the guest on the program, so I can use my own URL, right? Yes, you can. It's ianstrock.com. Actually, ianrandallstrock.com. Both of them work. It's one I, L or two L's on Randall? One L. It's I-A-N-S-T-R-O-C-K.com. If you're asking about the pronunciation, you can talk to my parents. That was their doing, not mine. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being on here. It was my extreme pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Although, I, I got to say... I hate when people respond to the thank you by saying thank you rather than just saying you're welcome. <laughs> so you're welcome. Okay. It was fun. Yay. All right. We'll see you guys next month, won't we? Night, everybody, or goodbye. Goodbye. Good night. So long. Farewell. I'll be the same.